everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So this is podcast number 30. My name is Jay McNamara and I'm joined by my fellow host Naaman Jolka Anderson. Hello. So a big thank you to our last guest, Jemima Reynolds, who discussed her role at the charity Trekstock and support for young people with a cancer diagnosis. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go on and take a listen. You'll probably learn more about me than you would ever care to know. Um, We are pleased to introduce our guest for today, which is June Davis, who will be discussing the impact of allied health professions in supporting people with cancer. So hi, June. Thank you for coming on. (laughs) Nice to see you So June, just to set the context, you are actually my old boss from Macmillan. And some may say I'm quite brave about inviting my my old boss on a podcast. Um, so we'll see by the end of it. Um, but do, do you mind just uh, introducing yourself and telling the audience a little bit about yourself and your career pathway? Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you very much for inviting us um, to join RadChat. Um, so, yeah, I'm June Davis. I have a bit of a, I think it's what is called a portfolio career um, at the moment um, but I'll take you back I won't say how many years um, to where I started so I trained as a dietitian so I was looking for a role that I could do I didn't even know dietitians existed that involved food and catering and helping people though Um, so I didn't even know as I say the role existed and I was either going to be a nurse or a chef and the blend of the two became a dietitian. So um, I spent, um, so trained and then spent quite a lot of time, um, a good 12, 13 years in clinical practice and worked my way around most specialties, to be fair. So I think the specialist generalist is what I would suggest in terms of clinical care and pathways, but latterly did spend a lot of time in the oncology um, space with with patients both across head and neck, neurology, ITU, those those kind of areas. So um, I worked my way up the country in terms of clinical roles. So started on the south coast in Chichester, moved up to Guildford, which is where I trained, and then moved to um, Oxford, where I managed the service at the what was the Oxford, which is now the Oxford University Hospitals Trust, um, and then. Um, went on a uh, secondment um, from Oxford to um, St Mary's in Paddington and some of your listeners will know St Mary's um, including Naman um, when it was St Mary's so I'm going back a few years and I was supposed to be there for a year and I stayed for 10. So um, that was through the merger into um, what is now Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust and managed um, allied health professionals across the organisation there and um, then moving on from that, did some secondment roles, I suppose, in health authority, as was. Again, I'm perhaps showing my age about health authorities and structures. But um, then took an interesting path after that, um, which some may say, and I'm a very low risk person. And um, we decided, um, as I was working with a colleague, that we would um, set up a company. So I completely jumped out of the NHS, literally. And um, that's never looked back, to be fair, in terms of setting up the company called Allied Health Solutions, which supports um, the system, health and care, and people in it around anything to do with workforce, allied health professional colleagues, um, arm's length bodies, professional bodies and others, but also um, working with the wider health and care teams um, in a a significant range of projects. Um, Too many to go through here, but um, they may be, it might be around education, training, clinical reviews of services, um, those kind of things. And I would say some of those are at a national, a regional and a local level. Um, so that's the, the I still am co-director of um, Allied Health Solutions and also the other main role that I have is as um, Allied Health Professional Advisor working for Macmillan Cancer Support. So um, the other bit I failed to include in my career path there was 
because it's a, so, such a range of things. I used to be a McMillan professional. Um, so I used to work again on the coast, moving further along the coast into Dorset. And I used to be a McMillan professional and worked in what were cancer networks previously. We'll come back to those, I'm sure, a bit later. Um, and then I moved into Wessex and was um, a McMillan professional lead. HP lead there um, and then went into the Macmillan role um, in 2015 and that subsequently changed in terms of title etc but has two main arms to it I suppose um, the first is around representing um, and influencing the system really around allied health professionals and their role in cancer and the other is around prehabilitation, rehabilitation, symptom management, consequences of treatment, um, along with all of your good selves as specialists um, in all of this. So and work very closely in that role because we are obviously an organisation that is across four nations. So there is um, extensive links across, you know, uh, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland. So that's probably a bit about me. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, it's a great introduction. Um, I love the term portfolio. Um, well, just uh, so many different things you've done. There's so much like very different experiences from your roles that will draw into where you are now. Yeah. I think that's quite nice to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you, we actually spoke a long time ago when I went for Joe and Hazel's job. So it could have been so different, couldn't it? <laughs> but you definitely made the right choice with Joan Hazel, don't worry. <laughs> um, so I suppose that, as you've said, you've touched on there's many allied health professionals or AHPs, so with you know, vital roles within the cancer pathway. Um, could you tell us a bit about the key findings from the national um, AHP survey that you do, so the workforce survey? Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, I think it's, um, it's an important question because there's quite a there's a, if I may there's the allied health professional workforce report which um, Macmillan did um, two or three years ago and you can people can download that from the site and um, also there's work that's gone on across several cancer alliances um, around allied health professionals and what they do and what they could do and what the potential is so we some of the some of the work has been you know trying to understand and get others to understand where as allied health professionals and there are probably some allied health professionals that will spend more time working with people with cancer than others so um and some that are more obvious and i suppose some of the description was about understanding what type of patients we see um and when we looked at some of the work across some of the professions um no surprise, but when we look, some of the the, the top tumour types, and I, in some ways it's it's a bit, um, I don't like to talk about tumour types because it's about people, but people with different conditions, so lung cancer, breast, head and neck cancer, um, neurological cancers, um, brain and CNS tumours, etc., and upper GI cancers were the most dominant across when you take a generic view. So you start looking into, say, I'll just take my own profession. Dietetics is probably quite obvious. You'd be looking at upper to lower GI, um, head and neck, those kind of areas. It's not dissimilar for speech and language therapists. But I think even understanding, people understanding those things about, you know, where people operate in this space is quite important. So I think when we start talking about um, physiotherapists, um, you would probably expect people to be working in the respiratory space with lung patients, um, with um, those in um, breast in terms of mobility. And I'm just thinking certainly post radiotherapy, et cetera, et cetera, really important uh, metastatic spinal cord compression, those those kind of areas. Um, occupational therapy, again, um, across across tumor types for, for a range of different reasons. And when you talk with, um, because I'm on a rad chat, therapeutic radiographers, you know, again, you will be seeing people from all of those different tumor types, depending on the treatments individual patients will be having. And it's the impact um, and outcomes which will come to of what can be delivered there. And so I think that's that, that was sort of the broad brush in terms of the types of tumour types. But then you start to think about, well, what are the interventions? You know, what is it we do actually? 
of which some of us kind of do certain things, some of us do others. Um, we have USPs, we have unique selling points, I guess, and we also have things that several of us can do or support. Because if I'm a patient, I want to be seen by the most appropriate person, right skills in the right place. And I guess be able to um, know when to my limits of scope are such that I need to refer to others to support. So when we did the national work, some of the things that came out again, some of this will be no surprise, but just as headlines here, fatigue and energy management, quite significant when you start talking about occupational therapy and physiotherapy, particularly um, pain and pain management came out the strongest again for occupational therapists and physiotherapists. This is not to say others don't talk about it, but it's where you actually perhaps intervene and if you like, do something about it, um, if that if that makes sense. Um, clearly, mobility and loss of function sits more with um, or in the work we did with um, those from um, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, in some cases, therapeutic radiographers um, as well. Dysphagia, communication, body image, more around speech and language therapy, as you would expect. Um, I know as um, a dietitian, you work hand in glove with speech and language therapists. I certainly, when I was in my Oxford role, clinically would never walk onto the neurological ward without one. Um, and the same in head and neck, actually. One has to be absolutely working so closely together. Um, I think other things, obviously, around nutritional intake, um, cachexia, those, those kind of things, and the, the complexity with which some patients present will need complex therapeutic dietetic advice and support, whether that's artificial nutrition or not, but um, certainly early nutrition screening assessment, and it needs to be done by those who've got a trained eye, if you like, in that in that space. Um, and then I guess there's another finding that's, um, and it's actually came up earlier today in another discussion, because um, it was just interesting, we were talking about lymphedema, and the significance of lymphedema, which will be absolutely um certainly on your radar and your colleagues who are who are listening to the podcast now but i suppose it's also about how well it's understood um by others um in the in the in the clinical um system that people might pitch up and see i don't know in primary care or you know, nurses, doctors and others, you know, um, but actually it's probably one of the most distressing things for people because they can't get on with their lives because of all the, the the issues that lymphedema presents. I think moving on from some of the interventions and these, the tumour types, etc. there's something about, certainly when we've done work in um, looking at some of the Cancer Alliance surveys, there's been three across three areas in the country. Um, and just when you look across, not dissimilar findings, there's something about where we spend our time in terms of multidisciplinary team meetings. And, and anybody as, as old as I am, um, we had improving outcomes guidance for different tumour types. And some of you will know those affectionately known as IOGs. And some of those IOGs had um, recommendations for the number of AHPs you needed to support, I don't know, somebody with brain uh, brain tumour um, and that they needed to be in an MDT clinic. But it's really interesting that you've only got um, a small proportion when you look at some of the local findings of people actually in MDTs. And that's just an observation about where people are. And the main MDTs are breast, upper GI, head and neck, perhaps lower GI. Um, but that's there aren't many more, and and I think some of that is that's quite important to know and something we need to work on. Um, and it's not because people don't want to; it's just about where they're trying to, if you like, um, prioritise workload, caseload, those kind of things. Um, I think the other thing is that when we've done some of the um, national work and also in some of the work with um, alliances, um, there has been some interesting findings around where people spend their time in terms of the pathway as a whole. So if we think about pre-diagnosis, diagnosis and the prehabilitation piece through to and beyond treatment and beyond an interpalliation and end of life care, um, 
what does that look like? And most people are spending time, and again, this is just reported from treatment and beyond. And um, not so much in the pre-diagnosis and the prehabilitation space. So 12%, and that came out in the national and local work, are spending time in the prehabilitation space. And you will know and others will know that um, clearly there's a lot of work going on um, around prehabilitation and rehabilitation. And what's really important about that is making sure that we've got the continuum, we've got support for patients where they need it through the journey rather than at stop start points. Um, and the evidence is ever mounting. It feels daily at the moment. There's been a significant number of papers coming out. So I think the other finding just to um, finish on this particular question I mean, is that um, and Joe is the piece about learning and development certain education so which you'd probably expect me to say but actually we know that across the allied health um, professionals there is a significant amount of skills and expertise and capability but what I found over my time working in cancer care and I spent quite a bit of time in that space is the confidence and capability to transfer skills that you see with people with perhaps other long-term conditions across to people with cancer and it is a really mixed picture so some of i mean fatigue is a good example um, about fatigue management and the principles of fatigue management being um, translated to somebody with cancer which are probably not that different in terms of approach to somebody with a neurological condition. So, you know, it's just about giving people the confidence and capability. And I know there's a lot of resource, we've got competence frameworks, there's lots of education and training either in the system or being developed, which we can come to, but those kind of things. So hopefully that's helpful in terms of an overview. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of information there, I appreciate. <laughs> I think we could probably talk about that for hours. That was that was a lot of information, but really, really interesting themes. I think the what you said about obviously your role as a dietitian and working closely with speech and language therapists, the head and neck cancer site, especially in radiotherapy, that's where the uh, multi-professional team or multidisciplinary team works really well together. I think most, I know we've had quite a lot of listeners now from across the world. So within the NHS and radiotherapy, just to explain for head and neck, for example, you'd have a you might have a head and neck specialist therapeutic radiographer who just focuses on that site. You'd have a dietitian, speech language therapist and a clinical nurse specialist. And then they may or may not see a doctor. So in our department, week one and week two, um, us in the review team, so it's nursing and therapeutic radiographers, we would see uh, the head and neck patients. But it's really interesting that kind of synergistic work and how AHPs were kind of supporting the junior doctors or, you know, registrars or the consultants. And Joe, I know you, you were part of the, the Macmillan video that came out with that patient and that really highlighted how amazing it is and what kind of interventions from different kind of backgrounds so it's really really interesting i'm glad you highlighted that Naaman, because we were so honored to be able to kind of have jj um who we reached out to via twitter we just put out a, a tweet saying we'd really like to speak to some patients and um jj kind of responded and his story is amazing like i'm hoping one day he might come on the podcast but um, he was talking about his whole pathway with Hazel and I. And we just sat there for an hour, totally enthralled in everything that he went through. And not that I was expecting him to say it, because actually I didn't expect it and I don't expect it from patients. But he was very open about the fact that he felt it was the therapeutic radiographers that helped him get through treatment Um and he had come into contact with a lot of AHPs, but he said it was the way they worked together, um, which really stood out for Hazel and I, because, you know, as therapeutic radiographers, sometimes we aren't necessarily known for kind of promoting our role and even saying what our title is. Um, and he said that the dietitian and the therapeutic radiographer work so well together that actually he felt that when he was admitted onto a ward, he knew that they would get him through it and they would go and take out the supplements to his home. You know, that's NHS service for you, isn't it? <laughs> but um, but that, that partnership worked really well. And he did say, he said, I wouldn't have finished radiotherapy had it not have been for that kind of team working and that support. So I think it is, we all know, don't we, when 
when Boris goes on TV and says, thanks to the nurses and doctors, we all go, and everyone else. <laughs> um, but it's definitely relevant from um, that video that came out recently. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, please do go on and just Google Macmillan Therapeutic Radiographers. It sits on the website now. Um, and thank you, obviously, to everyone who contributed to that. But it's a real nice piece to show how AHPs contribute to to people's care and obviously they were Macmillan professionals um, that were supporting him and we didn't even we didn't even do that purposefully that just happened to be the case which was really reassuring <laughs> but I think synergistic working definitely and I know from the fellowship that Hazel and I did uh, June taught us loads absolutely loads uh, working with different AHPs it was uh, it was really beneficial from our perspective I, I think the learning was mutual, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and I think I think it was it was just it was uh, always very interesting and thought provoking discussions. In a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Macmillan is great for that. I, I obviously uh, loved being part of the um, CMO team. But it was really interesting just to get different um, perspectives on things and, you know, talking to a GP. How would a therapeutic radiographer work alongside a GP? Um, and again, it's from some of the primary care trusts, you'd think, oh, actually, you'd never you'd never get involved with therapeutic radiographers. And actually, looking at some of the mapping, you can really see how lots of different AHPs in different spaces could contribute that. So that that was really amazing to see but also to just the discussions we always say this don't we when you get an opportunity to kind of network and talk about things um, it leads to other projects and work and research um so june um we're just thinking in terms of kind of the actual fellowship itself and kind of working with people from different backgrounds and things how do you think AHPs wanting to learn new skills within a cancer pathway can go about that? Maybe with Macmillan, but also externally as well. Thank you. Um, important question. So to, to sort of cover a few things. So I've talked about the capability, confidence to translate people's skills across to supporting people with cancer. What's different and what's similar? And um, giving people that those those skills we, we've done work certainly I have through through the company work and through some of my other roles in delivering education if you like and we had paramedics radiographers dietitians speech and language therapists physios and I'm going to forget somebody OTs etc etc in the room talking about um, you know I don't know the myths about nutrition what you know and what you don't know and what you what's helpful to know when you're advising patients um, issues about, for example, metastatic spinal cord, etc. A lot of it's myths busting. A lot of it's knowing how to um, signpost people and where to direct people, and knowing who's in the system in oncology to support people, other than allied health professionals, whether it's clinical nurse specialists, whether it's um, oncology um, oncologist colleagues. Um, other radiographers, others um, who, who can support that because there's a lot of learning can happen there. And that's why I go back to the MDT clinics and the MDT teams of which you can learn a significant amount just by um, sitting and uh, networking and working with colleagues. So, you know, we don't profess to be experts in everything. Hence, we work with others to, as you've described in the head and neck example, um, which is an important example where we hand off and where we we work together and where you know i would say naman you do your bit joe you do your bit you know and we come together and um deal with you know some of those things um to support somebody at different points and of course you know sometimes you know it, it, we have to be patient-led here and it's about needs as well so so that that's important i think there's something about formal education and training that's in the system and available and or being developed so there is a piece um, called prosper which some of your uh, listeners will know about which is prehabilitation rehabilitation and um, all things linked to personalized care um, hence the acronym prosper um, which is a um, piece of work well quite a large piece of work in collaboration with health education england and macmillan 
and um, the initial um, online modules can be found on the eLearning for Health platform and there are more being um, drip fed in there. So the content there covers prehabilitation, personalised care more broadly and um, rehabilitation, symptom management, consequences of treatment. So um, it's really effectively divided into foundation, um, intermediate and advanced. And you've got, you know, you can go in at any level, just, you know, up to the learner. The learner chooses their path. I think that's the word. So that's that's quite important. Um, and I think what's telling about just doing that work, I mean, there are other facets to that work, but just just as the core, when we started looking at cancer rehabilitation, you realise how many symptoms there are and consequences there are. And we've covered hopefully the majority there, but we've had to divide that module into three separate sub modules because it's so big. Um, otherwise, the learner and it's similar to your your listeners, um, we could maximum 20, 30 minutes because you can't, you know, there's only so long you can sit and, you know, learn some of this stuff so it's only so long june that your manager will allow you offset <laughs> indeed indeed that's i mean it's a good point and about being really so you want bite-sized chunks that you can just go in and do you know so we've been very that's a really good point joe about being being clear about that um i think one of the other things is the as you asked me joe is about some of the opportunities so we've been sort of thinking about this in terms of the you know how people's skills can be adapted and support other parts of the, the cancer pathways in their broadest sense no matter what tumor type we're talking about and for me there's something about acute oncology and how we could and should support people who um, we know some of the acute oncology presentations warrant certain professionals we also know that we have um, allied health professionals um, in, in quite a number of trusts and, and if we're in England or in the equivalent uh, organisations in the other nations and elsewhere who are working in accident and emergency and how well can those people help support patients and do they know their acute oncology services because some of the acute oncology presentations need support from allied health professionals. And that's been borne out in, um, there is a, a really uh, good model at uh, Valindra Cancer Centre in uh, Cardiff, where it is um, an acute oncology service led um, by allied health professionals. And those um, admissions, which they try not to, they try to admit and then discharge, a lot of that is um, around where the allied health professional skill set is. Um, supporting the carer, supporting the person, dealing with some of the social situation that there might be, all of those other other issues. Um, so I think there's huge potential and there is going to be work, well, I'm hoping to be able to articulate that better and what is the potential opportunity. And certainly we are doing work um, through one of the um, cancer alliances looking at this in more detail because there's a huge opportunity and that links to um, some of the um, community hubs that are uh, developing um, and are developed across different parts of the system as well, where patients might present um, acutely and, and need support. The other area for me is around the diagnostic pathways. Clearly diagnostic radiographers, of course, but in terms of what we can do for perhaps low risk patients and the two week wait pathway. And certainly that's come up again um, and to use the example head and neck again, where if you've got um, potentially um, patients that are put onto a particular pathway, they have hoarseness of voice, etc. Actually, there is an opportunity to take them out of that pathway where they don't, um, where it's found they don't have a diagnosis, but they need support for the, the symptom they presented with, of which for that example, this speech and language therapists um, primarily supporting some of that. We don't have that sort of infrastructure in place, not really. So there's, I mean, that's an example. And again, going back to, I mean, I'm not a physiotherapist, but I spend a lot of time with physiotherapists. And when I talk about, when they talk about uh, metastatic spinal cord compression and um, 
clearly um, understanding how to escalate that, what to do, um, and clearly um, uh, expedite accordingly is really, really important. But there are other opportunities in the diagnostic pathway. So it's not necessarily diagnosing the cancer, but it's diagnosing um, and supporting what symptoms people are manifesting with early on, um, which are perhaps due to other things. I think there's also um, an opportunity, and that's described in some ways, I suppose, through the cancer rehabilitation pathways, which, again, they were published from, um, well, refreshed, I think is the word. Um, and they're available on the, um, they're currently on the Macmillan um, Cancer Support website, but they came from the National Cancer Action Team back in 2012, if anybody's can remember any of that um, but they are a refresh and they do describe across the pathway what um, the different opportunities are again they need a bit of an update but they are good as a core set of information um, I think there's something again about um, the symptom management piece so I've, I've just listed you know we talked about lymphedema breathlessness um, the fatigue piece, mobility, pain management, nutrition. We know, for example, that 40% of patients are malnourished. We know that about 33 to 35% of people have mobility issues. We know that about 80%-ish of people have some form of fatigue. So, you know, these are these are big issues for people, you know, um, that, that are the things about living or living well. So how can our skill set, our collective, which is huge skill set, support that. There are some really good examples, actually, um, Joe and Naman. In there's a quick guide that was developed by NHS England in Improvement around how we support people with cancer, and there's some great case studies. So if you Google "quick guide cancer," it'll come up, and that's really helpful. There's also um, a document that was produced by Health Education England, which again describes the contribution of an art therapist or a drama therapist or somebody else in or a podiatrist in um, cancer care um, whether it's sarcoma or some of the other other conditions and so again that that's found on the health education england site so it just provides more opportunities i think the other area is around that sort of the, the palliation and end of life and actually being pro proactive there there are many brilliant teams around to support and what we do know is perhaps if we're working and supporting people through hospices, daycare, that kind of thing, that people who are accessing those services could access them for many years. It's not just at the, you know, for a few weeks. So how can we support that? And you know, there's, there's the skills can be transferred across. So I, so I hope that's helpful in terms of a, an overview. Yeah, it's really good. Um, I think just to come back to what you said around. Um, so AOS, so Acute Oncology Service, and sort of like the Yukon's uh, telephone lines. Um, so just for any students listening, the most I learned about oncology was going and shadowing those teams, and then also with the palliative care team. So communication, I think I learned everything from palliative care and end-of-life care teams, just how you'd go onto a ward, there'd be lots of family there who want to know what's going on, but uh, the nurse I remember who I worked with, all she did is, oh, come with me to the kitchen first, she got herself a cup of tea, went inside, we all had a cup of tea with everyone, and then that was it. That had set the scene, and it was just lovely. So I think for students, it's a really good team to follow. Acute oncology, the the vastness of cancer. So in radiotherapy, we see patients for such a small snapshot. You might only see them for one appointment, and you, know, and you try and do everything for that patient. But obviously, that snapshot is nothing compared to the whole journey a patient goes through. Some patients go for treatment for over six, seven years, um, I think now there's a lung patient who I've seen quite a few times um, due to immunotherapy, um, although he was told he had two, three years to go, he's still going for seven, eight years afterwards. And if you think all, as you said, not the burden, but all the little things, all the different AHPs, you can help that patient along that kind of nine year treatment journey. It's amazing. I think acute oncology, as you said, it's such a good thing to point out. Like I loved that experience i think i went back quite a few times that i got told no you need to do your objectives for radiotherapy um, but it's just yeah the the pathway around it so chemotherapy immunotherapy surgery um everything i just yeah i loved it um just wanted to shout that out it's great great to hear your experience i think and it feels like the there's lots of opportunity and people are willing to hear more about what the potential is because people don't know what they don't know unless we describe it 
So um, certainly, again, um, work with the um, with Cancer Alliance colleagues is is picking that up loud and clear, you know, um, about what the potential is. Initially, it was mentioned. It's like, so what role would we have then? So it was like this sort of, well, where would you like us to start? You know, <laughs> but they don't know what they don't know. And I think we need to help people understand what's possible there. And it's not to try and give us extra work because everybody's really busy, but it's where can we have the impact that will support people in the best way? Yeah, sorry. And I know, Joe, you've been looking into stuff around primary care and late effects as well. Yeah, so I just think it's a definitely through the Macmillan Fellowship, really, in, in terms of how we could be utilised in different areas across the cancer pathway and linking up with those services. So um, I think exactly what you said, June, sometimes it is around level of education, knowledge, confidence. We've definitely seen that in, in um, professionals reporting that they have the skills, you know, they have the knowledge there. But the confidence to talk to people about something that they have always deemed to be uh, physiotherapy led or occupational therapy led or dietitian led. They're like, oh, I can't possibly say that. Um, and you really do have to kind of be very explicit about the fact that anyone can give public health advice. It doesn't have to necessarily be an expert. Um, so absolutely, I think that's something for lots of the educational providers to pick up and, and run with to make sure that we're really educating the future workforce to think about that adaptation in service delivery, the integrated care services, thinking about the crossover of skills. And that's not to say that you're not going to qualify as a professional in whatever it is that you're you're dedicated to. It's about giving you the opportunity to assist in different ways and across pathways. Um, and, you know, it, it would be amazing if you had healthcare professionals that were able to support dementia in whatever area they were going through. You know, that's not to say that you're an expert, but that you have the knowledge and support to be able to offer um, to that patient and their relatives when they might be attending for a diagnostic scan or for radiotherapy. Um, so I think definitely what you mentioned, June, about the crossover of pathologies thinking about how we can support cancer patients again in other areas, you know, offering advice about diabetes and cancer. You know, there's lots of times, isn't there? And I know from my own experience and also um, a colleague that I had who was um, going through a transplant. And I always remember her saying, oh, I've got five blood tests to do today. And I said, what do you mean you've got five blood tests to do? And she basically said, well, they're for different things at different hospitals. Yep. And she was traveling 40, 50 miles a day just to go to different hospitals for blood tests. And you just think, why are these services not joined together so that you go for one blood test? And yes, it's a big old draw, but actually you're then doing all the tests that you need. Um, and I know there's huge changes that are occurring um, through the NHS and the infrastructure and things, but um, I definitely think that joined up working will be patient more patient-led, um, where you get patients who are kind of saying, right, I'm under the care of this person and this person, you need to have a conversation <laughs> to reduce some of those hospital visits. Because really, when you think about it from a patient perspective, who is your customer, some people might say that, you know, they're, they, they're getting a service. Why are we trying to make their lives more difficult? We need to try and support them as much as we can when they are suffering with fatigue, mobility issues, nausea. The last thing you want to necessarily do is go to different centres or different departments for different interventions. So I think I think we can look at it from both sides as well, really. Mm. Um, mm. I think that's important. Jean, I know we've kind of touched on it, but um, I suppose for the local cancer pathway, so all, all across the country, um, and you said in all the nations, so all the different AHP roles that you've discussed or we've discussed so far, how do you think they can influence those pathways and kind of supporting cancer patients a bit better? Yeah, no, good good question. I mean, and I think there's something about um, demonstrating the out the so what rather than describing the inputs. I always talk about the outcomes rather than the inputs. We're quite good at talking about what we do to people, so to speak, um, rather than what the so what. So um, I think a good example of this, um, and again, this is through my um, company company work, working with one of the um, cancer alliances, 
is through um, some transformation funding, they have um, supported five, I'll get the title right, Allied Health Professional Integrated Care System Cancer Advisors. So they each do one day a week each, and we're, we're doing a pilot over the over six months or so, six, seven months. And we've got two speech and language therapists, um, two dietitians, and a physiotherapist. Just so happens we put out expressions of interest. So people are seconded from their roles. Past, so they're clinical. All of them are clinical um, um, or, or team leads, etc. within acute and palliative care teams, actually. So it's quite interesting. We've got a mixture. And the purpose of those roles is to provide the alliance with the insight from the clinical services for, through an allied health professional lens. I mean, it's really interesting this. Um, I oversee some of that work at the moment, which is a, a privilege to be fair. Um, looking at things like service transformation, what opportunities are there? What about workforce transformation and change? Um, what about some of the influencing and stakeholder engagement that we can do or need to do? And what about the education and training and what do people know and what don't they know and who, you know, how do we communicate and understand about what patient, um, for example, if a, a person with cancer and other clinical conditions perhaps goes into a nursing home, how does how does all that work for the patient? Um, how does it work if they have um, independent care agency coming into their home to support that? How does information flow? So all sorts has been aired through this and I was just um, heard a presentation from their latest work earlier today and some of the illustration through what we've done is through some real live but anonymized case studies really illustrates some of the themes which go back to things like diagnostic pathways, acute oncology, um, the myriad of people in the system supporting somebody and or somebody not quite getting what they need because of one thing or another and some of the pathways that um, there are versus how they could be improved and there's a variety of ways that that could happen but actually then providing some solutions and the you know you can absolutely see it the the, the team have have sought to find really quite pragmatic solutions some of which has meant for example we met with the care record system across that region and have sorted out some really simple things to enable information to go across, which is just a really quick fix. It didn't cost anything to do that, but it was about knowing who was who to have those conversations. Um, helped, to be fair, by um, senior colleagues in the Alliance who sort of expedited that for us. But it's, it's, it's a common issue, you know. So I think that's a, it's proving a really interesting model to influence what happens. Um, and what, I keep saying to the team is, you know, you might think you're stating the obvious every time you say something, but the reality is people don't know what they don't know until we say it. So we've presented some of this work at the the work, the, you know, the, uh, there's a workforce program board across the region and, you know, it's just been enlightening for people and you just think, gosh, this is great, you know, but actually it's not anything perhaps for some people on this um, who are listening, anything that perhaps is um, maybe a surprise, but because we don't articulate it um, as well, because we just get on with it, because we just problem solve, we just do it, we just support patients and don't make, you know, we don't make a big thing of it, that actually um, people are like, all oh, right, so maybe we need to do something about this, you know, um, and it's just, but also what it's highlighting is the potential and that's proving so exciting to be fair and I think those case studies and showing the impacts and outcomes are really um, important the other thing I think is how we signpost people and being really clear whether you're in a generalist community team who are seeing anybody with anything how if you find out somebody might have they may have cancer and there's an acute episode how do they escalate and who to and it's, I know we talk about directories of services, but there needs to be, I think back to your point, Naman, you know, understanding, you know, how you get to an acute oncology service quickly. If you're working in a, in a, a community team, that's nothing is not oncology specific at all. Um, 
and the impact that that can have. I think there's also um, significant work we can do and are doing around developing advanced clinical practice roles in cancer in community care and primary care, and um, particularly around the prehabilitation, the rehabilitation competency, competencies and capabilities. So again, that's that's another important area that um, I'm not saying we need ACPs for all of that because you need a career pathway, but actually some clinical leadership to support. I mean, a good example of that is that we are, again, through some alliance work, we are we put out expressions of interest to primary care networks to host a funded advanced clinical practice role in cancer, which could be a nurse, a pharmacist, an HP potentially. And we had we were overwhelmed with interest. Overwhelmed. So that just says something about so you get other intelligence through that about what the needs and the priorities are of those primary care networks. Absolutely fascinating process. Um, and so now there's such an appetite that we're thinking about. So I, I'm describing the knock on and domino effect of something really. Um, and the additional role reimbursement scheme for primary care roles such as dietitians, paramedics, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, podiatrists, etc., who can be funded their salary 100% in primary care. But we're going to start describing what that might look like for people with cancer, because there's an opportunity there um, to support people within a multi-professional team and develop those teams outside of the secondary care space, but have links in, if that makes sense. So I guess some of this is about, you know, using the skills we have to influence slightly differently about what could work and what couldn't. So it's just a few sort of examples, really, of, you know, how you might do things differently and influence. Um, if that's helpful. And like like you said, June, something that always sticks with me um, when Hazel and I were working together was what are the unintended outcomes and it always sticks with me because every time I do a project or a piece of research, I really do pay attention to things that I wasn't necessarily anticipating or even looking into researching. But those can sometimes be as powerful and as rich yeah. as as what you were initially set out to do or to yeah. investigate. And I, I definitely think for anyone who's doing project work, it's essential to almost store all that unintended outcomes in a place to go this in itself could be a PhD study as well as obviously the work you're doing but so important for anyone who's looking at developing or changing service or doing any research or project work um that always sticks with me I think a good example of that just if I may Joe, is that um through some of this work we've identified that there is a real um issue of access to services for those with learning disabilities and it's come up time and time again and one of our colleagues in one of those posts is sort of looking at that in a bit more detail and it's come up just from different teams not talking to not necessarily they haven't talked to each other about the fact they're going to bring this theme up it's come up so you know that's a really important thing that we need to sort out particularly at the diagnostic end of the pathway so you know that that can then get fed back as to well how do we work through that as a as a region really um good example perfect so june we're nearing the end of the podcast (laughs) so um the last thing that we always finish with with all of our guests is basically asking them if they had any top tips for any of the listeners so obviously the things that we've spoken about is very much around workforce so i'm anticipating maybe you know the allied health professions listening are there any top tips that you would give them based on what we've kind of talked about this evening? Yeah, so um, for me, there's something about understanding who to influence where you are. So about having a network, you don't need to have permission to have a network. Who is it you can work with and who do you need to know? It's inviting yourselves to those meetings that you are not invited to, if that makes sense. And also to those conversations. Um, because actually that that can really help and you can identify those stakeholders and other people that could support you. Um, and I think, as I say, nobody needs permission to do that or have a virtual coffee, do you know what I mean? And we can do that virtually or face-to-face. Um, and you, you never know what that will lead to. 
I think we need to clearly articulate the outcomes we can support patients with. So you may have had it on a previous podcast. I haven't listened to all 30 I have to, or 29, I have to admit. But um, the, um, you know, the, 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 the pitch you would make if, you know, you were stuck, you found the chief executive in the car park or, you, you know, something like that. You know, I think that's that's quite important. You know, what what is it and what's the so what? Because going to say we need another three of this is probably not the most helpful thing. That wouldn't be the most helpful if I had received that request. So I just learned from experience that that's perhaps not the best way of going about it. And I suppose, again, the third thing is us again, because we all know what we do, if you like, but the unique selling points of what we do for this group of people and hearing that from the patients and then repeating that back to others is so powerful. Having a few quotes at your fingertips from patients and their families is really powerful. So, you know, anonymized, of course, but I would use those, you know, they're, they're, they're important stories, hearts and minds, win hearts and minds. Absolutely. Oh, thank you, June. That was amazing and amazing top tips for anyone listening. Um, I think, uh, I think anyone who gets stuck in a lift with the chief exec of any trust needs to have their elevator pitch primed and ready, uh, notes on their phone, imagery at the ready. Um, that's definitely something that I teach my students actually, in terms of if you're gonna, if you're gonna get stuck in a lift with someone, what is it that we need for our profession? Or at least say that you're a therapeutic radiographer, as I always bleat on about. <laughs> So thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been Joe McNamara and Naaman Jolka Anderson. A huge thank you again to our guest, Jean Davis, who uh, is hugely insightful into all of the workforce development and AHPs. So head over to our YouTube page to see a live recording of this podcast. Um, if you're utilising the podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and some of the literature discussed within the podcast. And to receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form attached. So our next guest to feature will be Linda Thomas, who's discussing her role as the CEO of Macmillan Cancer Support. And I promise you, we didn't align to... Can- <laughs> two Macmillan colleagues alongside each other it just happened to be like that um but thank you so much June and uh, take care everyone good night thank you thank you